Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Iran and the bomb. So, Richard, since the last time that you and I got together, uh, President Obama has announced that there's been sort of the rough outline of a deal put together to curb Iran's nuclear ambitions. And we can get to the specific sort of outline of the deal for a moment, but uh, why don't we start here? You have spent a fair amount of time thinking about negotiating theory. You write about this sometimes. So, so yeah. what should the intellectual framework here be? If you're about to sit down across the table from Tehran, what are the guiding principles of how you're going to approach it? Well, the first thing is the guiding principle says the negotiations begin long before you sit down at the table. And one of the constant issues that you have to do in these cases is to figure out whether or not there are preconditions that you will agree to satisfy before you speak to the other guy at the table. That means that you're negotiating um, at a distance but negotiating nonetheless. And the Iranians are very good at all of this stuff and they say, you know, we want to sit down at the table. You have to be clear that you're going to lift some of these sanctions. You have to be clear that we really do need this nuclear program for fuel and for electricity and generations and so forth. And what the president does is he sits down and says, you tell me the conditions and I'm happy to come with them. And so that's the first thing is that you have to be there. Now, what could they have done on the opposite side? They said, look, you know, the annihilation of Israel is a non-starter for international affairs. Notwithstanding our enormous disagreements with Mr. Netanyahu, we will not sit down at this table to talk to you unless you will renounce the use of atomic force or any other aggression against the Israeli state and will agree to guarantee its um, existence, um, at least against your kinds of injustice. Now, at this particular point, they have some serious stuff to talk about. Um, they can simply say, you know, this is something to be talked about later, but I regard this as a non-negotiable demand. It allows the president to actually forge some kinds of tie with Netanyahu, and it forces the Iranians to say things that even if they don't wish to honor them, they will live to regret. That is, if they say, we now hereby reverse our policy – and acknowledge the fact that Israel as a nation has a right to exist, it's going to create a lot of problems with their extreme Muslim wing. The Ayatollahs are going to be extremely unhappy. Part of the population there, which is on the liberal side, that's the part which protested the fake and fraudulent elections in 2009. These guys might now summon up some authority to say, it's about time that we did all of these things. And so the important thing to understand about rhetoric is making a promise that you intend to breach has lots of consequences in the short run. And these are all favorable to the United States. But there was nothing of that sort that was done in this particular case. So that's the first problem. Uh, the second problem that you have when you run a negotiation, you have to figure out what your, as it were, your red line conditions are. That's a dirty word these days because the last red line we had was in Syria and it turned out that it melted away uh, when there was actually somebody in the Syrian government who used chemical weapons. And the president doesn't seem to have a last line. And what that means in effect is that the 11th hour changes in the negotiation status will come forward. And so in this particular case, you see the Iranians pulling off the table their previous concession, which said 
and we will send off fissile materials or at least some substantial quantity of them to the Soviet Union, that is to Russia for safekeeping at this particular point, that's no longer there. Now, I regard this in some sense as a silly condition to begin with. They should send it to us, not to the Russians. But let's suppose it's a good condition. You certainly don't want at that particular point to continue negotiations knowing that they're playing these 11th hour tricks. So uh, the president basically, I think, has done very badly on getting to the table and very badly in the wind down. And those are often the most critical two times in any negotiation. Okay, so let's look at the specifics here for a moment. Iran agreed, or at least tentatively agreed, to scale back its nuclear program significantly for 10 to 15 years and accept what's been characterized as intense international inspections. In exchange, the U.S. and the international community would lift sanctions that have been used to punish their economy. But looking at that, assuming those terms hold, is that a good enough deal? Well, first of all, it's a huge assumption on this particular situation right. because right. as Brett Stevens, who's you know at this point beyond irascible when it comes to talking about the administration, has said that's the Obama account of what the deal is. It's not the Iranian account of the deal. Their account is they will scale back. There will be limited inspections, but they won't be anywhere at any time. And in effect, uh, uh, they have, and the sanctions have to be limited, be, be removed right away rather than gradually over time. If, in fact, I thought that the presidential deal was one that was absolutely ironclad, my inclination would be it's probably better than going to war um, with the Iranians by attacking their nuclear facilities in an uncertain escapade right now. Probably, but you know, what am I to say with the kind of confidence? The single biggest problem about making this deal is twofold. One is we have no idea who's running this country. For the next two years, it's our president, and my view is he simply will not pull the trigger, even if provoked to do that. So if he had conclusive um, information as of January 1st, 2016, that this thing was up in smoke, I don't think you'd see those planes working on an ultimatum. Remember the way in which this was played, certainly in 1991 for example, and in 2003 by the father and son Bush team. Uh, when the ultimatum said, you have to stop this and indicate what you're going to do by 12 o'clock, what they did is they waited to 1201 and then they launched the various attacks that they were going to do. Uh, Obama has to be credible on that and he's just not credible on that. So um, it turns out that since this whole deal says if in fact they deviate, we will now have a chance to use major nuclear force against them or force against their nuclear weapons, it's not at all clear that that's going to be in the cards. The second problem, of course, is for any long-term deal, which is going to depend very heavily on executive enforcement, the successor question looms very large. Who is that person going to be and how is that person going to act? And it's an extremely dangerous situation, in effect, to have your system depend not on a series of conscious experience, you know, um, inspections that give you a lot of information so you can take mid-level sanctions. What they're doing is they're basically saying, all this intermediate stuff we can't really rely upon, but we still have the roundhouse right that we can launch. And when you put people to the point as to whether or not they're going to blow up a substantial fraction of Iranian real estate or do nothing at all, you never quite know which it is. So the basic structure of the deal, which is huge sanctions on the one hand or nothing at all on the other, which seems to be the way in which it's playing out, strikes me as being a, a very, very 
bad deal. And I, I think, therefore, that in some serious way, uh, the fine print on the sequence of these events has to take place. Under no circumstances shall you lift any sanctions on the promise of good things to come. It runs in the opposite direction. They first perform, and then we worry about lifting the sanctions. And the president always gets sequences wrong. He's willing to make concessions in exchange for promises. My view is you demand concessions before you make any promises. If the Israelis had negotiated like this with the Palestinians, they would no longer be a nation. President Obama over the weekend did an interview with Tom Friedman from the New York Times in which he said that he would oppose the proposal by Bob Corker, who's the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to give Congress a vote on this deal. And the president said, reading you the quote here, Quote, my hope is that we can find something that allows Congress to express itself but does not encroach on traditional presidential prerogatives and ensures that if in fact we get a good deal that we can go ahead and implement it. End quote. Traditional presidential prerogatives. Richard, is that a fair way for the president to characterize what he's after here? Well, no, and I, I take very strong exception at Tom Friedman making himself a mouthpiece for the president. I, columnists should express their own views, not do apologies. Now, the closest analogy that we probably have is the test ban treaty. Notice the word I used in the Kennedy years in 1963 where everybody understood there was ratification. Then there was the Kyoto Treaty. Again, note the word, which never got to the Senate because nobody wanted it. I don't think there is any, as it were, strong precedent for the single most most important international transaction of which we are to be a part, uh, to bypass a Senate consent and to allow, quote unquote, an expression, which could mean that three people are now entitled to write op-eds in the Washington Post explaining why they're unhappy with the terms of the deal. And there's also, in my mind, no excuse whatsoever uh, for saying that the approval by the United Nations should be a substitute for congressional authority. I thought the Republicans in their 47 senator letter made a serious mistake when they said, look, uh, this could be enforceable as an executive agreement, but it's not a treaty. So when we take over in 2017, if we do, we can renege. That's certainly true, but my view is this is so important that you cannot do this by executive agreement. If the president is in fact right, he has complete authority as to whether or not uh, to do this by a short-term executive agreement or by a long-term treaty, which means that the consent power of the Senate, which is explicit in the Constitution, is largely nullified. I, I regard the president as ironically as the single most aggressive person with respect to executive privilege. If George Bush had claimed this for anything that he had done, they would have had all hell to pay. And as you remember, I was very strongly against the president, that is Bush, when he sort of announced his unilateral authority to ignore the FISA limitations on the grounds that it impeded the inherent power of the president. This is a much more flagrant violation in many ways, I think, than that one is. And I think the president has to be roundly attacked on this store and that the thing has to go through ordinary processes. I don't regard this as a close legal case. I think it's an important precedent because if the president can do that, uh, then the Congress will be essentially irrelevant in all international negotiations in conflict with our constitutional scheme. Richard, to that point, many Republicans, probably most, seem to have been critical of the deal that the president struck. Even Rand Paul, who is certainly not the most hawkish member of the GOP, said in his presidential announcement that he's got concerns about the fact that the Iranians seem to be characterizing this deal differently than we are. So given the constraints, given the fact that whatever objections the GOP may have on this, the president is going to remain for the duration of his term the center of gravity on the American side of these talks, 
what should what should Republicans be doing right now? How can they move this process in their direction? Well, I mean, the first thing they have to do is to insist upon a publication of an agreement which reads the same in English as it does in Farsi, make sure that they get the translators to see that there's no slippage there, and then to give some kind of a public critique with a call for the fact as to why it is that we think that some of these things are not accessible. They also have to get some of the old hands like Henry Kissinger and George Schultz, to the extent that they're still able to participate in this in their 90s, and have them sort of reinforce the same kind of position, and they have to try to mobilize public opinion on this question. Um, you know, my sense about this is so many people here are so skittish about the use of force that the argument that I hear is one which is sort of ironic. Um, it goes basically, given where we are today, this is the best possible deal that we can get. Um, and what they do is they treat all of the previous mistakes of the Obama administration, starting literally the day in which he takes office and dismantles all Petraeus's initiatives in Iraq. They treat that as water under the bridge. You can't do anything about it. And so where do you go forward from here? But I think it's really important in terms of the internal debate not to give the president a free pass on what he has done. As I've said so many times on these kinds of issues, if you announce a timetable by which you're going to withdraw, two things start to happen. Uh, first of all, they could wait out the situation until you're gone. And in the interim, what they could do is to pick away at your loyalists by telling them that all hell is going to break Bruce unless you go on the other side so that the erosion starts while you still have a few troops in power. And then when you're gone, you get something like ISIS coming into place. All of this, I think, was absolutely predictable. I didn't know the name of ISIS. Nobody else did. But into a vacuum, some force will start to come. And those guys are just murderous. Witness the discovery into Crete of these mass graves which have 1,700 slaughtered quartets inside of them. And, you know, the president just keeps letting the ground situation get worse. And now you see fragmentation and disorganization. How a man can lead the most difficult negotiation with our most formidable adversary by by basically rocking back on his heels and hoping that the whole thing will sort of pass over seems to me to be a serious mistake. Look, I am not against international treaties. Reagan managed to get some to go fairly well, even with the Soviet Union. But when he did it, there was a huge moral offense against the evil empire and so forth. In our case, the president is simply silent because he kind of wants the cooperation of the Iranians in the situation in Iraq, even though we know that the Iranians are fomenting mischief in Yemen and so forth. Uh, so he has an indecipherable foreign policy, which means that everybody's going to treat him as a weakling, and if they treat him as a weakling, they will form their own alliances, which will misapply our force in all sorts of cases. Our friends as well as our enemies are in a much worse position uh, by virtue of the fact that we exert no consistent leadership. And the Iranian treaty is simply the last element in that, uns that sorry mosaic. I mean, he really should have done better than all of this. And unfortunately, I see no sign that he will change his mind. He never changes his mind. He is always the smartest man in the room. That's true when there's only one person there. <laughs> so final question then. Uh, handicap this for us. The upshot of this deal with Iran, assuming it happens, is is what? Where does this put us down the road? Well, I, I 
don't know myself. I think it's absolutely fluid. I mean, first of all, I think one of the things that tends to favor the deal is that for a variety of reasons, the Russians will be strongly in favor of it because they can now play footsie with the Iranians in ways that embarrass the West. I think that the other four powers, Germany, England, France, and so forth, um, they're going to sit there in China. Well, the four European nations, they have so weakened their military stuff that they really don't want to take it on the chin. And the Chinese, I guess they're the fifth member of the Security Council. Uh, they are at this point sufficiently aggressive in their own particular fashions that you can't count on them to do anything reliable. I mean, the tragedy about China is given the fact that there's no strong democratic pressure from us. It's become in the last five to seven years a much more regressive and repressive regime than it previously was and the high hopes that one might have had in 2005 or 2006 are being largely dashed. As that part of the world gets worse, it seems to me it's going to be harder to get this treaty to to start of work. So I think it's going to really depend not only on the Republicans, it's going to have to depend on Democrats, whether or not indicted, that's Menendez and so forth. They have to, I think, express the same kinds of uneasiness. Israel can speak, but the president, of course, pays no attention to them whatsoever with respect to these short-term tactical judgments. If Schumer becomes, as it were, the heir apparent to the Democratic leadership in the Senate, that might change the balance a little bit. But I think the odds are probably better than even that some version of this treaty will go through unless some major fiasco or catastrophe happens sometime in the interim. So I'm not optimistic about this. Um, my sense about hearing it is people just hope that they can shove this thing under the rug. And I think that that's a dangerous tendency to do so. Uh, but I do think that it's a very powerful one. This country still has a majority of the populace which thinks that any engagement in foreign entanglements is a mistake. And they just have to understand understand that if you don't do it on your own terms, you'll have to do it later on on terms that are much more advantageous to your rather die-hearted enemies. So it's not, I think, an optimistic position. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.